Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is a partnership between the Department of Criminal Justice and the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics related to government. Some may be surprising and some may not. So please enjoy. Welcome to episode 27 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, the 9-11 terrorist attacks and changing democracy. I am joined by Dr. Kevin Parsnow from the political science program in the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato. So Dr. Parsnow, I'm going to start off with what, where would you like to go with this? There were so many changes. So what was the first change to democracy after the 9-11 terrorist attacks that comes to your mind? Probably the first thing that comes to my mind was among the first things that happened, which was authorization uh, for military use against uh, anyone who supported terrorists and terrorists and state sponsors of terrorism. I don't know exactly when that passed, but almost immediately uh, the decisions after September 11th with huge support, I think it was upper 70s, 80% of the public in favor of military use in Afghanistan um, for presidential use of the military. And while presidents have tended to use the military on their own decision and said that their role as commander in chief of the military gives them that authorization, the massive support, plus the fact that Congress not only went along with it, they were cheerleaders rather than asserting any sort of, but wait, we're the ones that have the power to declare war. So George W. Bush, use that position of commander in chief to, to quickly, rapidly move into Afghanistan and not long afterwards to, to use it to justify taking military force into uh, Iraq. And I think that's probably the big one, that expansion of executive power. That's not new, right? It happened in the past, but that particular event, possibly because it was, it was, it was so shocking, it was right on American soil uh, resulted in something that was kind of going on in the past to some degree, really accelerating, really getting an exaggerated version of that. So that's probably the big, big difference. And, and, and that seems to still be the case. The first one, the 2001 um, authorization to use military force was passed on 9-14. So literally three days after the 9-11 attacks. And I always thought that one was interesting because Representative Barbara Lee from Oakland, California was the only one who voted against that between the House and the Senate. Everybody else voted for it. And the reason she says that she voted against it is because it granted the president overly broad power to wage war. She said she was not opposed to going to Afghanistan and getting terrorists, but she thought that it granted overly broad power. Um, the 2002 one um, authorized the use of military force in Iraq for the Iraq for, war, and that was a year after uh, September 11th. But those acts have not been repealed. Is that correct? They keep renewing different versions of them. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's and, and it's interesting, right, because, OK, so eventually they they kill Osama bin Laden, um, but they've expanded it to. Uh, groups like the Islamic State uh, that came under various names and people like the Islamic State was not even around on 2000 or on 9-11 in 2001. So people, 
so it's like, well, how can you be going after anyone who was involved in this attack if they couldn't possibly have been even in existence during this attack? But, you know, the Obama administration, of all people who kind of ran as the, the Democrat who didn't support the war in 2008, was the one that justified continued military use and drone strikes in countries that weren't Afghanistan, weren't Iraq, um, suspected terrorists um, throughout, throughout the Middle East and in different countries that weren't involved in, if you, if you just set aside the fact that Iraq was not involved in the attack on Well, and we know that uh, President Trump used it for strikes against Iran. And to go back to President Obama, um, he infamously authorized drone strikes that actually killed an American citizen that was linked to a terrorist organization, one of the sheikhs that was uh, killed in a drone strike. So, all right. So besides the authorized use of military force, which was still in effect, um, what are some other ideas that impact our changing understanding of democracy? Because we may have some listeners that weren't born at that time and don't understand how much has changed. I mean, I, I guess the other one I would would um, look at was sort of the rise of Islamophobia and prejudice against um, not even necessarily Muslims, but people from the Middle East or who even uh, look like to, to some Americans like they're from the Middle East. Um, so you, you'd be, you know, the, there was a person who was a Sikh who a Sikh um, an American who was uh, attacked because they thought he was Muslim, and not that it would be okay to attack a person just because they're Muslim, but it was as like that. It, it's not as if Americans did not always have the image of Muslims or people from the Middle East being terrorists. That was sort of a pop culture thing. If you go back to movies in the '80s, other than uh, maybe Hans Gruber in Die Hard, almost all of our terrorists were Middle Easterners of some mysterious thing, right? And so that was in the popular culture idea, but the, the actual terrorist attack in the US on such a scale, I think just ramped that up. And despite uh, President Bush's best efforts to reassure the public that Islam was not, should not be associated with terrorism, it's, it's, it's a legitimate religion that teaches peace, um, that idea and instances and prejudices uh, came out and they continued um, well, you know, decades later and were worsened by those events. Well, from the law enforcement perspective, we saw hate crimes increase dramatically against anybody that was perceived that they could be Muslim. Um, in Minneapolis, we had several attacks on Somali people that were walking down the street, especially if they were in any kind of religious garb. Um, in Wisconsin, we actually famously had a Sikh temple shooting for uh, a male who was a white male who was blaming them for being terrorists, even though the Sikh religion has nothing to do with Islam or even the Middle East. Uh, we had profiling of people that were perceived to be Islam Americans or Muslim Americans. In fact, there would be 911 calls about terrorists driving down the road. Uh, because someone looked like they might have been from Afghanistan, Pakistan, or the Middle East. So we saw a big increase in hate crimes. But, you know, how did this uh, perception of the other, the Muslims that were the terrorists, link into what happened down at Guantanamo Bay, where we now suddenly had 
people that were taken prisoner, but they weren't considered prisoners of war. And what, could, what did Guantanamo Bay and what happened down there do to our changing understanding of democracy? I mean, I think that's another thing you might say, an, an erosion of American values, or at least what people believed were American values if you look at elite discourse. I'm not going to say that pre-9-11, there weren't plenty of Americans who would be like, well, torture people and get the information out of them and stop whatever threat might be, right? Um, but when it became a serious real issue with a real event, um, it seemed to justify to... And, now I feel a bit like Robert McNamara is famous. It justified in some people's minds that it was okay to engage in things that previously Americans would have criticized other countries for. And extraditing people who were captured on the battlefield, suspected terrorists without trial, holding them in Guantanamo Bay because it's not American soil, right? So, so um, and then of course, there's always the argument whether uh, foreign nationals have a habeas corpus right or protections in a place so you don't have to hold trials so you can get away with things or at least you can claim to get away with things that do not follow U.S. law. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the torture that went on uh, in uh, on, uh, Abu Ghraib, right? And people actually justifying this. Americans on major television networks justifying things that a generation earlier, I don't think anybody would have justified, except maybe like the most remote AM talk rate person trying to be a shock job. Right. And in a main discussion that people, that, that legitimately elected members of the administration or, or of Congress, supporters of the president, office holders, spokespeople, not necessarily coming with a full throat, but, but at least justifications for it. I don't think that was something that would have happened 9-11. So in that sense, eroding that sort of American understanding of ourselves as national law, uh, upholding national law, and, and frankly, being the mm -hmm. I think a lot of that got eroded between 2001 uh, and today. You know, that's interesting because it actually brings us back to, you know, one of the founding ideas of our democracy is that we have checks and balances, right? We have three branches of our government that's supposed to check each other, but yet the judicial branch did not step in when the executive branch was redefining what a prisoner of war was and redefining what interrogation was. And in fact, pretty much washed their hands of it and said, you know, that's a military matter. We don't step in or they're not U.S. citizens or they're not on U.S. soil so they don't need to be protected like somebody who's here, when in reality, they should have been providing some sort of counterbalance to that. So it's, it's, we, we see this as a big impact after 9-11, right? The checks and balances kind of falling apart. And we saw that with the USA Patriot Act and the Foreign Intelligence Sur Surveillance Act. So I will set that one up since I've done a lot with this, but like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act allowed the executive branch of the United States government to wiretap and go conduct search warrants in private person's homes without probable cause and without having to tell the person that there's warrants or, or, or court orders in place at any time um, to have this done, which seems to go counter to the Fourth Amendment where you're protected from illegal search and seizure. 
um, we still see the FIFSA is still in, intact. In fact, there's a special court that's supposed to hear these uh, petitions to allow it to happen. How does that impact our, our view of democracy here, Dr. Parsnow? Well, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's odd in a sense that a sense of privacy and protection against government surveillance that we felt protected prior to 9-11 um, has in some sense fallen apart. Well, not in some sense, I'm backing it off. It's basically fallen apart. And right to your point, um, I'm not, I, in my intro to US government, I've got plenty of critical things to say about James Madison. And, um, but his, his whole idea, right, if you read Federalist 51, is that these different branches of government engage in checks and balances, right? They should jealously guard their own purviews. He doesn't talk so much about the judiciary in Federalist 51, but we would expect the judiciary to step in and do something against executive overreach. We would also expect, right, he clearly expects Congress to not want the president to go off and do whatever he wants. And Congress, for the most part, were either cheerleaders, I guess, depending upon whose party you were in, or unwilling to step forward and challenge uh, presidents on these, these issues. I, and I'm gonna flip this around a bit as a presidency guy. I think sometimes presidents like to exercise power, but ultimately they might be better off if there was somebody to stand there and check them on some of this stuff. Because when everyone's backing off and deferring to the president, it kind of dumps it all in their lap. And then they've got to make a decision. And of course, George W. Bush, was no shirker in terms of, I'm the decider. I mean, he actually said, I'm the decider. And he did it, but over the, the course of events, might've been happier if somebody had tampered his ability to, to make some of those actions. Um, and I, and I'm, I probably the same thing is the case for um, Barack Obama or President Trump. And I suspect, I suspect Joe Biden will run into this, although his history in the Senate he, he seems to be almost wanting to check himself a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. It's just this, this deference to presidents um, has really created a strange situation where it, it's almost a burden on the president more than what they reasonably want. They might want somebody to step in and stop them or at least tell them you can't do this. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it would be, I would say it would be difficult for the, um, the Congress to step in at certain points because it would have been very hard for many of them to say right after 9-11, no, no, we don't, we're not going after the terrorists until you have like a good plan, right? Because of the, the patriotic fever that was going on, fervor that was going on at the time. However, the judiciary could have easily stepped in and said, whoa, 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 we're way outside our constitutional bounds here, rein it in take a deep breath, you know, that type of thing, but they really didn't seem to do that either, so. Right, I mean, you should expect some, you should expect some members of Congress, right? If you're, if you're from some district in Massachusetts or someplace, you should expect, you know, someplace with a lot of Democrats, um, you should expect some of them to step forward um, and say something. And I guess you've got Barbara Lee, but that's not, that's not a whole big consensus. And you've got a lot of people falling in line, just worried. Um, I don't know whether they're so worried about necessarily the next election, because a senator is not going to be up for six years. You would, 
you know, some of them. Mm-hmm. I think you would think enough of us have been around history long enough to go, whatever I think now, things might dramatically change in six years. And I should consider that. But people didn't seem to think that, right? In 2001, they're not thinking, how will this all be perceived in 2007? Because right. 2007, right? A lot of Republicans are about to lose their job because they were too supportive of the, um, they were very supportive of the invasion of Iraq and that wasn't going very well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, before we get to the talking about the changes of the party, I just wanna go back to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act for a second. Um, because it establishes procedures for the physical and electronic surveillance and collection of foreign intelligence information, the only president we really saw push back about that in the last 20 years was President Trump because he kind of got caught up in this. This is where your investigations about his links with the government of Russia came from, was actually some of the search warrants and surveillance that was done under FISA. Um, and he was one that pushed back on it, but the American public really didn't go for that because it, it felt like it was just individual instead of a big concept. So it was kind of interesting. Mm. All right, well, so, so you kind of hinted at what I want to talk about next. How did our two major uh, parties, our two major political parties change from 2001 until now? And was there impact maybe on our elections? Well, I, I mean, I think that, and, and of course you can only run one version of history. This isn't Star Trek. We don't get multiple versions of history. We just get the one. So we don't know exactly. But I, I think that um, there was a, a large public consensus after September 11th. And they strongly supported military use uh, in Afghanistan. And, and George W. Bush brought them around to the idea that you know many believe Saddam Hussein was behind September 11th in some way or connected. Or if they didn't, he was a bad guy who needed to go anyway. So there was a lot of support for this stuff. A lot of, I mean, Republicans got behind it, but even Democrats were afraid not to get behind it. And this elite, this, let's say, party leader or elite consensus, um, in many ways, you know, everyone thinks, oh, we were all together at that time. But it kind of shot both parties in the foot in a sense that by 2008, the war did not was not over in a few months or whatever Donald Rumsfeld promised. Um, it, it had dragged on, and here's Hillary Clinton, who, you know, by this point is not a supporter of the war, and and argued that she had merely voted to authorize Bush to use military force, but she didn't say he should. She was just saying, well, I want the president to have that kind of power to negotiate. Uh, but that didn't sell very well. And the anti the anti Iraq war president or candidate, uh, uh, Barack Obama, essentially knocks off somebody who was the inevitable candidate. Right. If you go back to fall of 2007, Hillary Clinton is the inevitable nominee of the Democrats and she gets knocked off. Given how close that was, it's hard to believe that she wouldn't have won had she not had that massively uncomfortable issue of having supported authorizing George Bush. So I don't think we have a President Obama if we don't have the post 9-11 events. And that said, right, a lot of Republicans stuck their neck out for George Bush's war. And within a decade, it's not looking good. 
And a lot of grassroots Tea Party types and so forth are really mad about it. They're really mad that they sort of bought into it and it's wrong. Not that they weren't still saying use the military against terrorists, but they didn't believe their traditional Republican Party leaders any longer, that, that it sold out. So that by 2016, right, Donald Trump runs as, I was always against this war. That's not true, but he said it, right? And people got behind him as sort of a rejection of all the never Trump Republican establishment. So both establishments took a massive hit because of the consensus and agreement around invading Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think that the, the last 20 years has been a real trouble spot, especially for the Republican establishment, but also for the, the Democratic establishment, how to negotiate that. And I, I, I mean, the last two presidents, I don't believe would have been in office had it not been for uh, the post 9-11 decisions. And I think, a lot of, I think a lot of trust in government and party elites has evaporated. You know, that's very interesting that you bring up the question, you know, would there have been a President Barack Obama without the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war? And you know, the more you think about it, it really doesn't. So, all right. So one more big topic here before we wrap it up. What other civil liberties have you seen change since uh, the 9-11 terrorist attack? And how does it impact our view of democracy here in the United States? I mean, I, 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 I just keep going back to, um, I just keep going back to the issue of, of surveillance mm -hmm. of citizens, that there's a general acceptance of government surveillance of people in general. Maybe however many decades we are now, three decades into the internet, or you know, at least two decades into, I'm carrying around a phone that's basically the the FBI uh, <laughs> FBI Director Hoover only wishes everybody was carrying around a tracking device so good as my phone, and I don't even think about it. And I'm sharing my thoughts, and I'm doing all these things, and and you know, now you have. I, I think you talked about um, not only that they could get these records and surveillance, but gag orders companies turning over these sort of records and then suspicionless searches of just running algorithms through computers and looking for anything odd mm -hmm. and that's used to supposedly defend us from de defend us from terrorism and maybe it has so i mean there hasn't been a 9-11 since 9-11 and certainly if you would have said on 9-12 or 9-19 or any day it's i mean i know i know a lot of the people listening may not have been uh, old to remember stuff, but people felt like something else was going to happen. Right. Nothing, oh, nothing anywhere near the scale people were afraid of happened. Right. And I, so maybe some of this has been used to protect us. But on the other hand, um, do we really trust? I mean, you know, Edward Snowden indicated that no, we, we couldn't trust the the government with this information they're not going to only do what they say with it mm -hmm. i shouldn't have opened that can of worms with edward snow um, well we won't talk about him specifically but i mean i just look at what we see for surveillance um i always think about the novel 1984 by george orwell with big brother and how that was supposed to be mm -hmm. such a dystopian science fiction thing but 
Okay, well, we do. We do carry around phones that track everything. I mean, we, I, I'm going to date myself, Kevin. I know you're about the same age as I am, but we used to be able to go to the airport and just walk up to our gate and maybe go through a metal detector, but we could, everybody could walk up to the gate. You could wave people off. You didn't have to show your ID. Um, now we have to have real ID where we've had to verify our, who we really are, not just by showing a driver's license. You have to have multiple documents and there's a large database there. We have license plate readers that, uh, that record when people are going on driving over bridges, just randomly keeping surveillance. I mean, look at our closed circuit televisions that we have in most metro areas, if not smaller areas. The ring doorbell, for goodness sake, you can record who's coming up to the front of your house. And I don't know without 9-11 if we would have all gone down that route. I mean, because we use it for safety. That's always the big thing is we use it for safety when we didn't feel that unsafe before 9-11. I, I, yeah, that's, that is interesting. We, we, we've, you know, they always talk about the classic, how much liberty will you trade for safety? And, and um, I think maybe Winston Smith wouldn't have felt so miserable about life if he had a phone with cat memes on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean, it is odd in the wake of the pandemic, when you think what you have to do, the lines you have to wait through, I need my ID at this point, when you used to just walk into an airport and yeah, I guess in retrospect, it was probably really easy for the terrorists to do some of the stuff. And if there were more in, in, you know, bad people who wanted to do it, it would have been easy in 2000, but you stuck up and, and you could wave goodbye to grandma or, um, and, and not even though no one was killed by that shoe bomber, right? We still take off our shoes 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And um, however, on the other hand, during the pandemic, people argue that wearing a mask or getting vaccinated, some sort of horrible transgression of your civil liberty. Like compared to the relative danger of these two things, I should still be able to have my shoes on if that's the mm -hmm. case. Yeah, right? maybe that's a weird comparison, but it, it, it to me, the, the main point isn't whether masks, vaccines, take our shoes off the lines at airports, so much as the, the sense of fear and danger and the willingness to make that trade off um, was so different right in the immediate time after September 11th. It seems out of proportion. Right? Right. Maybe people's response to the pandemic is out of proportion, too. Um, that gets into a whole discussion of people to, to, to assess danger. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, I, it's almost weird to remember what it was like going to an airport in 2000 compared to now. You just get so used to like, okay, I got to get in the line, got to take off my shoes. I have somebody digging through my, my on, and you just do it because even joking about it at that point is going to get you pulled to the side and, mm -hmm extra special treatment. Well, thank goodness the underwear bomber was not successful. Otherwise we'd all have to strip search, but, but you know, there were originally like in, within the first year of that, we had the grandmas that were losing their knitting needles and you couldn't carry your like embroidery scissors. I mean, there, it was an overreaction, but honestly, we've not, we've not reclaimed some of that Liberty we used to have. And again, the surveillance state, I agree. The surveillance has just increased so much and we've never backed off on that. And the courts won't back us off and the executive branch is not going to give up that power. 
And I have never, I haven't seen anything come out of Congress to limit it either. So it's, it's very interesting that that one is one people won't touch because yeah. of safety is what the, the, we have to keep us safe from those terrorists, even though most of our tax in the last 15 years have been domestic. Yeah. 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 I'll pick on the Supreme Court a bit, but you'll, the people still have to come in and do drawings of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Exactly. But we we all care about a tracking device and all kinds of invasions of security. Somebody could be somebody could be hacking this podcast right now and all of our mistakes that you and I are making and all of anything that we've said that will be edited out, they'll certainly come back and punish us for it. Oh yes, or troll it. Thank goodness we're not doing video because who knows what we'd look like in the end of that, right? So okay. uh, <laughs> right. a little bit. It, it is it is weird. I, I I guess I'm, I'd be really curious um, and to, to talk to people who, are, who, are, uh, who, who don't remember before 9-11 or any of that. It would be really interesting to hear their opinions because they, on the one hand, for those of us who are older, it seems odd how much privacy we've given up willingly, right? Whether you're talking about the laws or whether you're talking about like, now I carry the phone around and I do stuff. Um, as opposed to people who've grown up in this whole time period, because they actually seem to have thought about how they're going to negotiate these things, and, and maybe more than I have. Mm-hmm. They, but maybe they give up privacy more than we do. I don't know. Yeah, that'll be interesting. All right. Well, you know, that sounded like a perfect closing thought for this podcast. You know, it would be interesting to do a little comparison because it's a, a generation gap there. Now, because we've had pre 9-11 and post 9-11. So Dr. Parso, thank you for your time. I always love having discussions with you and we can always go off on tangents. It's always fun, it's fun to see where we both go and how we're thinking. So thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash let's talk gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.